All right. Well, we're going to move into a study time of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, um, turn into your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible uh, today, please feel free to grab one back there to use for today. If you don't own one, uh, keep it. It's our gift to you. But um, uh, this is important to understand that when we teach uh, God's Word, it's, n- it's not my own words. Um, I don't come uh, up here with an agenda. I have no uh, point to prove and nothing to proclaim other than God's Word. So what we do is we open up His Word, we read what it says, and then simply um, exposit what we're reading. We teach through uh, what we're reading that we might all understand. I study it during the week so that I will understand it, so that I can just pass on to you what this dummy learned, okay? So that's what it, pretty much what it is. And as I was preparing for this this week, I was thinking about um, pastors and how they are often evaluated. Um, they're often evaluated on the basis of, of wrong criteria, unbiblical criteria. If you think about it today, a lot of pastors and their ministries, they'll say, is a success because of the size of their congregation, the size of their building, or if they have a building program, uh, their popularity, their charisma, if they've uh, written certain number of books, or if they have some sort of TV or radio uh, presence of some kind. Uh, years ago, I was given a book called Seven Practices of Effective Ministry. And as I went through this book, he was using the metaphor of a baseball team. So don't worry, it doesn't really come through in these, but um, even I struggled with this as I read through it. But uh, this person's opinion was these were the seven practices of someone who is effective in ministry. I'll read them to you. One, clarify what constitutes a win. Okay. Two, think steps, not programs. Three, narrow the focus. Four, say only what you need to say to those who need to hear it. Five, listen to outsiders. Six, work to replace yourself. And seven, evaluate work and celebrate wins. Now, there might be some things in there that have some truth to them, but I will tell you that not a single one of those seven practices of an effective ministry is biblical. It's not the way that God evaluates what is an effective ministry or who is an effective minister. What does make a good minister? What makes his ministry effective? Well, I want you to look at verse 6, just sort of by way of introduction here. And it says this, and this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. So there you find the phrase, you will be a good minister minister, really it means servant, of Jesus Christ. It's the anchor phrase for the rest of the teaching that we're looking at today. Paul is intending to answer that question, what then makes a good minister? And good, by the way, is that word kalos. We've looked at it before. It means noble, excellent. What makes an excellent minister? And minister as well, that word is diakonos. You should all know what diakonos is now. It was used back in chapter 3 of deacon, and they're specifically of the office of deacon. But as we know, that word simply means servant. It's a servant. And so here, in the context of what we're looking at, it carries that more general meaning of anyone who serves in any ministry on Christ's behalf. You are a servant of Christ. Now, let's look at the context to understand why he might be talking about a good minister. At the beginning of chapter 
4, we looked at this last week, Paul issued a very strong warning, didn't he? It was regarding the effects of false teaching, apostasy. Apostates are those who depart from the truth. False teaching leads people away from the truth, not toward it. And he gave us an example there in verse 3. In verse 3, he said this, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. That's asceticism. People have tried this all throughout the years. Asceticism is denial of self. If you just deny yourself because your flesh is evil, it's wicked, it's sinful, then, then that's the path to godliness. But that's not the gospel. It's absolutely wrong. In fact, it's, it's false truth. And that it was an example he gave there. There were false teachers in this church in Ephesus who were teaching things like that. And so dangerous was that type of teaching. Paul had to deal very harshly with two of them. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, he mentions them by name of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That was a long time ago, back in chapter one, we taught through that. But to deliver someone to Satan simply meant he kicked them out of the church because in the church, there's a certain amount of spiritual protection. There's spiritual covering. The chief reason is that you are being given truth, or at least you should be. If a church is a true church of God, and the truth is being taught, there's spiritual covering, there's spiritual protection. Outside of that, you're at the mercy of Satan. He says, I've turned them over to Satan, that they would have to learn not to blaspheme. So in this passage, rather than sort of give, uh, give teaching on, you know, seven ways on how to spot a bad teacher, seven, seven characteristics of a false minister, instead of doing that, instead, Paul writes to Timothy, the young minister in this church, Paul's apostolic delegate, to consider his responsibilities, the, 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 the qualities that he should exhibit in his ministry if he's going to be a noble, good, excellent servant. And there's a lot of them. And today we're just going to look at six of them, okay? So I've really got a two-part sermon, part one today and then part two next week. I've titled it, The Good Minister of Jesus Christ. So let's read through the passage. It's just verses six through 11. I'll read, just follow along in your Bibles. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this passage that is before us today. We thank you, first of all, that it is your word. You've given it to us. We thank you that we have it accessible to us in this day, that we can read it, that we can study it, that we can learn uh, what your will is in regarding to the church. And here specifically, as we learn what your will is in regarding to those who serve Christ. So Lord, I just pray that you would bless our time. Would your spirit just reveal truth to our hearts, Lord, that we might apply these truths to our lives and bring you greater glory because we love you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
All right. Well, I'm just going to go right through our outline here. Six points about a good minister of Jesus Christ. First one is this, a good minister of Jesus Christ warns his people of error. He warns his people of error, and you really see it right off the bat with those first few words in verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, what things? If you instruct the brethren on, on what things? Well, when he says these things, it's the things he just finished talking about. And as I just recapped, he was talking about the false teaching that leads people away from the truth. And so God holds men in position of spiritual authority. He holds them accountable to warn their people of untruth. My job to you is to warn you of error. It's one of my jobs. And there's a very high standard God holds us to. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn back to the Old Testament to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, he was a prophet to Israel, um, and he was prophesying to the nation of Israel who were really backslidden, who were into idol worship. And he's given Ezekiel a great role and a great task. He's called the watchman over Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, it's a lengthy little section. I just want you to see there's a strong uh, language here, strong verbiage that he uses about the importance of a warning. So in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says this, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, no, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you are, uh, sorry, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Now, I can't go into all that he is talking about there, but you can see the language very clearly there. There, Ezekiel was responsible to first warn the wicked of their sin and where that leads, but second, also to warn the righteous when they fall into sin or they veer from the truth and begin to go on the path of um, sin. It's the job of Ezekiel, and likewise, it's a job of a minister to warn the ignorant of the folly of their ways. Ignorance does not save people from punishment. God still holds people accountable because the law is written on their hearts. That's what God's word tells us. So warning people of God's judgment on the wicked today, it's simply not in vogue, is it? People really don't like to hear from the pulpit words like sin, judgment, hell. Ah, let's just not use those things because they're people pleasers. They want to keep tushies on the cushies, right? That's what they want to do. Um, that's not my job, and ultimately, God's going to hold me accountable for warning people. I must warn you of the truth of 
God's Word. Now, having said that, how is that primarily done? You'll probably notice that I don't speak week in, uh, or spend week in and week out every single uh, month uh, warning you of every new wind of doctrine that pops up under the sun, because if I did, that's all we'd ever do, right? I mean, if I just said, okay, so this has popped up over here, this is popped up, that's all I would ever, ever do. Instead, that's not my job. The scripture instructs me to instruct you of what is true, not of what is false. If you're instructed on what is true, then knowing the truth, you'll spot what is false. That's how that works. I, um, uh, if you're new to our church, you probably notice that we open a Bible, we have a passage, and we teach from it verse by verse. And we do that book by book, chapter by chapter. I didn't just pick this chapter today. We've been, we've been working through it since the beginning, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And that practice is called expository preaching. Expository preaching is key to this. One, you know I'm not up here trying to get my own agenda out. <laughs> Two, we're just wanting to see what God's Word says. And when we do that, when we go verse by verse, guess what we're going to come to? We're going to come to passages like we did last week that give the warnings, right? And so we do have warnings in Scripture that we get to teach through when they come. I want to read you a, a quote that's in a book called Pastoral Ministry from John MacArthur, and he speaks about the importance of expository preaching. Listen to what he says about this. A little lengthy, but it's so good. Expository preaching is a most exacting discipline. Perhaps that's why it's so rare. Only those who will undertake it who are prepared to follow the example of the apostles and say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, Acts 6, 2, and 4. The systematic preaching of the Word is impossible without the systematic study of it. It will not be enough to skim through a few verses in daily Bible reading, nor to study a passage only when we have to preach from it. No, we must daily soak ourselves in the Scriptures. We must not just study as through a microscope the linguistic minutia of a few verses, but take our telescope out and scan the wide expanses of God's Word, assimilating its grand theme of divine sovereignty in the redemption of mankind. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. I just love that. We're to have bibline blood. And that is so important to teach expositorily because as we do, we come to all the warnings, all the encouragements, all the exhortations, all the principles that the people need. So I don't need to address um, ungodly teaching happening in every place in every corner of of the world. However, one warning I do fairly give, uh, I give fairly often, is to be very careful about what you are watching and listening to on the internet. I have no control over that. You have to be very careful, and you have to know, you just have to know, that there are many, many false, ungodly, blasphemous teachings uh, being taught on the internet. Much of what you will find here in Britain in particular are teachings and practices of the NAR, it's the New Apostolic Reformation. We were at Truth For Youth uh, with a bunch of families and kids this last summer. Tony Brown was a guest speaker, and he actually taught on the dangers of NAR. And I have to tell you, it's pervasive. It's absolutely everywhere. In fact, there's not many a church that I'll go to their website or talk to someone where I get a, a whiff of NAR. What is NAR? 
Essentially, they are modern-day offices of apostles and prophets are, are how they are functioning today, and we no longer need the Word of God because God is speaking through the people. And so you just need to take my word for it because God has spoken to me. You can ditch this because I'm the new voice of God. That's the idea. And I don't want to mention names necessarily because there's many, many, many of them. But I was recently made aware of one in particular who hails from Scotland. Her name is Emma Stark, and she calls herself a prophet. And she's written a book called Becoming the Voice of God. That should be a dead giveaway, right? We don't need the voice of God here. You can become the voice of God. Just enroll in my prophet school, and I'll show you how. They believe God is primarily speaking through those offices and not the Bible. They believe God is in charge, but he's not in control. And so he needs his apostles, he needs his prophets to take back the dominion of creation that Satan has taken. Prayer, that's not about worship, it's not about relationship, it's about declaring and proclaiming. They believe in experience over theology. Let me give you some buzzwords. You hear these kind of things. These are uh, little signs to be wary of. Dominion. Signs and wonders. Interestingly enough, there's another church going to the same neighborhood where we are, and their sign says the Church of Signs and Wonders. So there you go. All right. We know we're false. We're just going to put it out there and let you all know. Um, In-time revival. Wealth transfer. Activations. Impartations. Seers, soaking, mantles, and of course, prophets and apostles. Now, that's all I'm going to say on that today. I'm just trying to give you uh, an example. I don't want to spend weeks talking about or even studying about the NAR. I don't want to study every other demonic doctrine because I want to spend my time in the truth, not studying untruth. And if a good minister is to warn his people of error, then he himself must, and this is point two, carefully follow the truth. You see it right there in the second half of verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Which you have carefully followed, that phrase is actually one word in the Greek. Um, It's parakolotheo, and it means to examine thoroughly or to faithfully follow or even to conform oneself to. And that is the great goal of Scripture. The great goal of Scripture is to transform us. It's that we would conform ourselves to the pattern of the, wor- the Word and not the world. And Romans 12, 2 teaches us that, doesn't it? It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. You want to know truth, you want to know the will of God, then you've got to conform yourself not to the world, but to his word. Let his word transform your mind. Those of you who've been in God's word for any number of years will know what that's like. Don't you think differently about some of the things you used to think about? Don't you see the world differently than how you used to see it? Okay, that's supernatural. That's God's word. God's word reveals truth to us. And we're told that the minister, the servant of Christ, must be nourished in the words of faith. Thank you. That's, that's getting brighter. I was going to say, get my shades. I'll be up here. <laughs> nourished in the words of faith. Now, I like that he's using that word nourished. I think he's doing it on purpose. Nourished in the words of faith. Because the false teachers, what were they teaching? Abstain from foods, weren't they? 
Food has nothing to do with it. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. Abstain from foods, don't eat food, it doesn't matter. Physical food means nothing at all. But we need spiritual nourishment. You have to have God's word because that's the only way you grow spiritually. You know that? You won't grow spiritually if you don't have God's word. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It's a very simple illustration. A babe doesn't grow if it doesn't get the milk. And when you're a spiritual babe, you need to desire that milk so that you grow thereby, and eventually you crave meat. But we must crave God's word, continually feeding on the truths of Scripture. That's essential to the spiritual health of Christians. We must have that. What's 2 Timothy 3? 16 say, I don't have it on there, but um, all scriptures God breathes. It's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need all of it so that I'm thoroughly, thoroughly equipped. And a minister, he must study it. He must meditate on it. Uh, master the contents of scripture. Be conformed to the truth. And then he fulfills the mandate of 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That takes diligence. And Timothy, this is to Timothy, by the way, had been doing that since childhood. And Paul is just urging him to continue. Continue to feed on those truths. A good minister, in order to be able to warn his people of error, must himself know the truth and spend time in the truth. I'm not going to sit under all the untruth. I'm going to sit under truth. Which really leads to the third point. He himself then must also reject ungodly teaching. Look at verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables. I love that, that phrase there. Reject profane and old wives' fables. Reject is a harsh word there. It literally means have nothing to do with it. Shun it. Turn away from it. Completely reject it. Don't even entertain your ear to it. I think it's a great danger to even entertain it. Well, let me, listen, let me just check this. Let me listen to this. He says, re reject it. And he says, these things are profane. Profane is, is worldly. It's unhallowed. It means anything that's radically separate from holy. We just sing about holy, holy, holy is God. This is the unholy teaching he's speaking about. And then he says, old wives. What's he talking about there? Don't listen to old people. No. Actually, that literally meant in the Greek, fit only for old women. And it was actually a phrase commonly used in the philosophical circles. You would use that as a term of disdain for anyone's viewpoint that lacked credibility. You would say, oh, that, that lacks credibility. That's for the uneducated. That's for the old wives. That's just a, a, a fable. That's how you would use that. And it, the fable is a myth. It's only, it's only good for those uh, uneducated. And I have to tell you today, Many people are deceived by things like that. And so you, you are looked at the same way he describes. You're just, you're like listening to old wives' tales here. This is, these are fables. These are myths. Don't listen to such things. Reject those things. In fact, let me show you in 2 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy. Just make a right-hand turn to 2 Timothy 4, just really briefly here. We will turn around in a few verses here uh, a bit today, but I want to show you in chapter 4, sorry, of 2 Timothy, uh, verses 3 and 4. There's a great warning here. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, 
They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to what? Fables. Fables. We're told here that the reason for the deception is because they don't want to endure or bear under what the Word of God teaches them about themselves and the world. I think a common mistake, particularly for new believers, is that they have very strong worldviews and opinions and things, and they bring those things into Christianity. They bring those things in here, and then because those are already there, the itching ears are there, don't even realize it, then look into Scripture to find support for their point, which is appealing to your itching ears. And you have to recognize that when you come to faith, you have to, you have to get rid of every one of your preconceived notions about who you are and what the world is, what God is doing, because here he informs us of the truth. You can't combine the both. You must reject all, everything you used to believe and think and go, what does God's word tell me? And that's what's been happening here. You're, you're believing stuff that most people would go, that's for the uneducated mind. That is foolish to believe in. Sad to say, I, I know of, of beliefs like that growing in prominence in the church. And I would say, you need to check your itching ears. A minister of Jesus Christ avoids the influence of godly teaching in his own life. Anyone who wants to serve Christ must check that. Don't saturate your mind with such things. And here's why. Your mind, it's a very precious thing, isn't it? You subjugate your mind to unholy things. Even say, I want to investigate this more. You're actually damaging your mind. It's a dangerous thing. And I would say, don't play around with that. Instead, saturate yourself with truth. We're to meditate on what's true, not untrue. Consider Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Meditate on the things that are true. Meditate on the things that are lovely. These are, these are great principles to apply. I'm thinking too much about the negative things. I'm, I'm filling my mind too much with untruth. And how do we battle that? We battle it with truth. Let me get you the fourth point here, going back to our passage. A good minister disciplines himself toward godliness. Look at the second half of verse 7. But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself toward godliness exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, for some of you, I just said a curse word, exercise. <laughs> but that word actually is gymnazo. It's where we get gymnasium or gymnastics, okay? So that, that word means to train. That's what it means. It just means to train. And, you know, gymnasium is perfect. That's a place of training. That's a place of hard work and sweat and not so lovely smells. And that's why I really don't like to go there. That and things are very heavy. If I'm going to train, if I'm going to exercise, for me, this is for me, I need a goal. You know, we, got, we, we run the 10K for the Ronald McDonald House. We raise support. For me, yeah, I'll go run around because I've got a goal now. I'm raising money for a good cause, and I, you know, I can go do that and run in the rain and, and whatever. Do you have a goal for training towards godliness? Do you know what it is? For some of us, just, yeah, train for godliness, and that's just like, what, what is that? 
It's just sort of a, it means nothing. Godliness means reverence. It means piety towards God. It's a right attitude. It's a right response toward the God who created you and me. And I want to show you how Paul talks about the importance of training towards these things. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you're in our passage there, we're in chapter 4, just take a quick look at chapter uh, 6. I want you to look at verses 3 through 6 here. Starting in verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. And you skip ahead to verse 11. He says this, You, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and patience and gentleness. So we're to pursue godliness. And to understand godliness, he's given us some opposites of that, hasn't he? Uh, The things that make one proud, that make one obsessed over disputes. People who argue, revile, who are operating from envy and strife. All of those are the opposite. But I will tell you, a great amount of effort goes into those things. Boy, there's a lot of work that goes into how can I tear into this person? How can I, how can I demonstrate a dispute? How can I revile even evil suspicions? So, and he says it's useless wranglings of men. It's, it's useless. It's futile. It's the opposite of what we're to be putting our effort and energy towards, which is godliness. And some of you might be thinking, okay, hold on. You just talked about uh, earlier how uh, you've got this guy preaching about uh, you know, asceticism, and, and we don't cut things out. And so, so what's, how do you balance that? How do you pursue godliness and yet don't, you know, don't do things? It's a very simple principle, actually. We basically cut the things out that we know is wrong, and we keep the things in that God has blessed. He gave two great examples there, people who say marriage is bad and food is bad, yet God has blessed both. But here's a great list of things that we are to cut out. We're no longer to be people who are caught up in wranglings and evil suspicions and reviling one another and envious of one another. That's nonsense. That's the opposite of where we're supposed to be going. We're supposed to be going towards godliness. In fact, you have the ability to do that within you because God has given it to you. 2 Peter 1.3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. You have it just by the knowledge of your Savior who died for you. That's incredibly humbling. So godliness then is at the heart and soul of Christian character. It's the aim of Christian living. You want a direction to go? Go towards godliness. And I mentioned to before that Paul made the point that Christ makes godly living possible. We can't do it without Christ, but spiritual self-discipline is necessary. You won't become godly by sitting still on your chair and saying, all right, godliness, just descend upon me. I'm, I'm waiting for godliness. You won't pray it into existence. It takes spiritual sweat. One of the helpful books that really helped me when I first really began to follow the Lord was a very well-known book by Kent Hughes, Disciplines of a Godly Man. 
They make one for women, disciplines of godly women as well. And here, it really laid it out for me, because maybe you're thinking, well, I don't even know where to start. Something like this is helpful, because he breaks it down into, in terms of relationships, discipline of purity, discipline of marriage, the discipline of fatherhood, and the discipline of friendship. How do you be a friend to someone? In soul, discipline of mind, discipline of devotion, discipline of prayer, discipline of worship. In terms of your character, discipline of integrity, the tongue, your work, and perseverance. And in terms of ministry, the discipline of church and leadership and giving and witness and ministry. All those areas, given the biblical perspective of how do you discipline yourself toward godliness in these areas. It takes first knowledge. It takes understanding. Sometimes you don't know it until it's pointed out to you, right? Like, I haven't even really realized I haven't been disciplining myself toward godliness in giving. I haven't realized I haven't been disciplining myself toward godliness in ministry. Whatever it might be, you need a goal and you need a direction. Use something like that. It's a great resource. I'm running out of time. I was going to take you to a passage. I'll just read one of them to you, okay? If you want to turn with me, you don't have to, but 1 Corinthians 9, I'll just read it to you. Um, 1 Corinthians 9. I was just going to show you that Paul spoke a lot about the spiritual sweat that's required to pursue godly living. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he speaks about it in sort of athletic terms, in terms of running a race. You're familiar with this passage, I know. But in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but, and here it is, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. His whole point is to say, you know what? Your great task begins with mastering the flesh, mastering self. We are the master of the flesh. It's not supposed to be the other way around, where my flesh is just dictating everything that I do. We must learn to master it. In 2 Corinthians 7, and this is the last one we'll look at here. It's 2 Corinthians. Just go to the next book to the right. He says it very plainly. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So cutting out food is not your filthiness of your flesh. Ceasing to be married is not your filthiness of the flesh. Anger is. Slander is is. Hatred is. Coarse jesting is. Sexual immorality is. Those things that the scripture is constantly pointing out says, these are the things your body naturally is going to, but you now learned how to master it, and I've given you the ability to do so. Isn't that an amazing thing? He's given you the ability to be the master over what used to master you. So if you're a servant of Christ today, discipline yourself to godliness. Notice verse 8. Go back to our passage today because he doesn't stop there. In verse 8 of our passage, he uh, goes on speaking about exercise. He says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is 
and of that which is to come. Now, you might be looking at this and say, okay, well, how does godliness affect us in the life that now is? What, what profit does it have here and now? Let me give you a great example from Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, 7 to 8 says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So you, well, hold on, Kevin, are you really telling me that if I, if I abstain from these things, I depart from evil, I'm serving the Lord, that it's actually beneficial to my flesh and my bones? It affects me physically? Yes, that is what I'm telling you. Absolutely. Because there are many, many sinful lifestyles that very much have a detrimental effect upon you physically. Don't they? If you're a drug abuser, alcoholic, it affects you physically. But even if you don't have those things, do you know that sin affects you physically, even without some uh, sort of addiction? David forfeited his physical well-being because he had not confessed to the Lord his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. In Psalm 32, he writes it for us. We have it forever given to us in verses 3 to 4. When I kept silent, meaning I didn't confess it, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You, you, you cease to have the blessing of the Lord. You've cut off that wonderful relationship that you have with your heavenly father. And instead, his hand is upon you and you feel it. You've certainly experienced that before I have. God's hand is heavy upon you. It affects you physically. But when we're in right relationship with God, we're pursuing godliness it isn't a wonderful relationship. You can have a flu. You can have cancer. You can have physical ailment. But because you have right relationship with God, you are flourishing in life. It's a beautiful thing. So how does godliness affect us in the life that's to come? Because it also says that, doesn't it? Well, I think this one's obvious. Physical exercise of the body, it lasts only for this time. And then it's gone. And people are just nutty about physical exercise. I mean, some people just get ludicrously crazy about it. It's not a bad thing. I enjoy to go run. I enjoy to try to stay physically fit. But he says, listen, at the end of the day, <laughs> it only lasts for this lifetime. But godliness actually affects not just the body, but the soul. The soul will go on to eternity. But these bodies, they're going to perish. You don't take it with you. So this is an obvious truth. And so obvious is the truth to Paul, at least, that in verse 9, he gives us one, another one of those faithful sayings. Remember, he's given us a few of those. In verse 9, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So that phrase refers to the things he's already said, not to the thing he's about to say. And this is the third time he's said, this is a faithful saying. It just means it's a trustworthy statement, okay? It's self-evident that believers are to be disciplining themselves for godliness because of its eternal value. All right, let me move on to point five here. We find it in verse 10. The point is this, that a good minister of Jesus Christ is willing to labor and suffer. <laughs> I, I enjoyed studying this one this, this week. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to labor, Lord, and, and suffer. You read that and go, oh, am I? <laughs> that word labor, kapiao, uh, is to work to the point of weariness. It's not just work. It's work to the point of weariness where I just drop down dead, tired, labor. And to suffer reproach, onai didza, 
dizo is to defame or revile someone, okay? So let's look at that labor word first. Why does he say that such hard work is necessary? Well, I want to take you to one more passage because it's very important because it answers that question. Why, why do we have to have hard work if we want to serve the Lord? Why can't it just be easy? This is a simple answer. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, if you don't, I'll just read it to you. But it's 2 Corinthians 5. It's verses 9 to 11. And he actually answers the question here with two reasons. Two reasons why hard work is necessary. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. He says this, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Now, here's his reasons. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Second, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Here's the two reasons. Two reasons why hard work is necessary for a servant of Christ. One is because believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible talks about it. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Now, one thing to remember, it is not a, a, a condemnation. Believers are not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, where God's books are open and people are judged according to their works and cast into hell. It's not that. The Bema Seat Judgment is where believers are judged on what they did for their Lord here on earth. The talents, the parable of the talents. Here's, here's this. Can I, can I see you use it? Go, go use it for my glory. You're going to be rewarded based on what you did with that talent. But the second reason he gives there in verse 11 speaks of non-believers. Unbelievers are going to face God's eternal judgment. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience. We all have friends and family and people we know and love that are not followers of Christ. And it burdens our heart. It burdens our soul. And it takes a lot of work and patience and love and grace to minister into their lives. And it's fatiguing. It's tiring. J. Oswald Sanders wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership. And he writes this, if he's unwilling to pay the price of fatigue for his leadership, it will always be mediocre. True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man. And the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price to be paid. I know I'm speaking specifically of, of a leadership there, but I would say anyone who is a servant of Jesus Christ that works for him, it's fatiguing. It takes great work. There used to be a quote we had on our wall back at Grace Chapel when I was serving over there that said, die tired. <laughs> and I can proudly say that I am on track for that. <laughs> but I only have one life to live for my Lord. And you do too. And yeah, we're going to die exhausted and tired, but we're going to live in glory. And we're going to see people there who wouldn't have been there had it not been for your disciplined hard work, your love to care for them. All I want to hear is well done and good and faithful servant. And I want to see souls saved. But he also says, not only does it take labor, but it takes suffering. It's going to bring reproach. It's going to bring ridicule to your life. People want to revile believers. They think we're believing a lot of nonsense and fairy tales ourselves. Like, oh, you guys believe in unicorns and things. And like, well, 
No, okay. fine. All right, there's unicorns. I don't care. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he came to earth and died for my sins and yours as well. He rose again. He proved that he was the son of God and he loves you. That's the truth. But we have to have thick skins. We've got to be willing to suffer reproach. We're told that we'll suffer. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We like the first part. Oh, it's granted to me to believe in him, but to, oh, to suffer? That came with it? It does. It does if you're a real servant of Christ. It will bring suffering. It's granted to us, we're told. You remember the apostles when they were beaten for, for Christ early um, in the early days of the the church, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They couldn't believe that God would allow them to be beaten for him. He, they, uh, that's amazing. Romans eight seventeen puts it this way. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. It's a great truth. We're children, we're heirs of God. But he says, but also if indeed you suffer with him. Suffering is part and parcel to being a believer. Now, he says something kind of strange here, and for the sake of time, I'll try to do this as quick as I can. At the end of this, uh, verse 10, he says, uh, those who are willing to suffer reproach because they trust in the living God. And he says this, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Well, what does Paul mean by that? He's the Savior of everyone, but especially of those who believe. And there's been three views, and people love to go into here and say, oh, look, there it is. Paul is teaching universalism. I knew it. Every single person will be saved because he's the Savior of all men. But that denies the basic principle, a hermeneutical principle of Scripture, that Scripture never contradicts itself. And there's enough places in Scripture to tell us that that absolutely is not true. The Bible teaches us that those who reject God will be sentenced to a great white throne judgment to hell. The Bible teaches that the length of that sentence is eternal. And speaking of those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus repeatedly taught on the dangers of hell. He constantly, all through the gospels, read the gospels. That eternal, eternal punishment comes to those, he says, quote, to, who die in their sins. They had not come to him for forgiveness of sins. So universalism is not being taught here. That is not the truth of Scripture. A second view is this, is that Christ is, he's the Savior of all men, potentially. Potentially he's their, their Savior, but really, actually, he's only the Savior of those who believe. But that's not what Paul says, because he says that God is the Savior, not potentially. He is the Savior of all men, and then especially to those who believe. So I believe it means that Christ is the Savior of all men in a temporal sense, but of believers in eternal sense. Let me explain what I, I mean. I think that that idea is closer to Paul's meaning. Now, Paul has already referenced God as the Savior of all men, as being Savior back in chapter 2, verse uh, 3 of our, of our passage. Just look at it there. He says, it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Then he says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, if you remember, Paul taught that since God desires that all men be saved, because he had that desire, he sent his son into the world to be the ransom and to, be, to make salvation possible. 
because that's his desire. I'll send my son. I'll make salvation possible for every man. And in that way, he is the savior of all men because he sent his son. That's his desire. However, he's the savior of those who believe in a special way since only in them has his desire been fulfilled. Isn't that a sad thing? God desired to save people and many choose not and do not fulfill his desire. And certainly I will tell you, don't fill their own. It's a sad truth. But Paul's main point here, that's not a, a big point here, but that an excellent minister has no trouble working hard and proclaiming the saving glory and work of God in Christ. The excellent minister is willing to suffer reproach knowing that he serves the living God, who is by nature the Savior both in time and for eternity. Colossians 1, 28 to 29 says this, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. It takes effort. It takes great work to see souls saved, and we must continue on that. One final point here. We'll close with this. The sixth point comes from verse 11. A good minister of Jesus Christ teaches with authority. Simply says this, these things command and teach. That's what he says to Timothy. These things command and teach. Now, one of the reasons he says that particularly to Timothy is that Timothy had a bit of a reputation for being a bit timid. Perhaps it was because of his youth. He was a little bit shy. But here Paul instructs Timothy to command these things. Command them. Everything God commanded Timothy to be, he was to command others to be. You don't often hear me up here say, I command these things. But in essence, that is what's happening. If God says you are to be and do these things, that is a command. It's teaching with authority, but not mine. I don't have authority. It's God's authority. It's the authority of God's word, which is why we can't get rid of it. We cannot go and say, oh no, God's only speaking through men now and women who are apostles and prophets. Because I will tell you, that's going to be abused. Listen to me. I have authority now. God has placed that within me, so you must do everything I desire or God desires. It's really what they desire. The truth is we must teach God's word with authority. Paul taught that way. And I'll close with this. In Acts 17.30, Paul was walking through the Oropagus. He's teaching to Greeks. And he says this to all these Gentiles, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's teaching with authority. He walks into a strange place and says, God is commanding you all to repent of your sin. He's overlooked sin. He's been very patient, but now he's commanding you change. You turn away from your sin. We're really to do the same thing. We're to say with authority, God has overlooked our times of ignorance. He's been very patient and he desires all men to be saved. That's why he sent his son into the world to ransom you, would you consider fulfilling his desire and be saved? Every call to saints to obey the word is a command that comes with authority, and it's God's authority. Here we've just covered really six characteristics of a, of a good minister, one who, who is a servant of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll look at the next section that talks about a few, a few more. But let me just encourage you, lest you're feeling quite overwhelmed here. Uh, we're all servants of Christ. If you're a believer today, you serve him. You serve him. 
Yes, there are leaders that have a, a higher calling in these areas, but if you are a believer today, you represent Christ here on this earth. You're an ambassador. You are. So would you just consider, consider this, that your life now has a higher purpose? Your life has an eternal purpose, a greater meaning. So many people are seeking for purpose in this world, right? They want to know, am I here for a reason? What am I doing? I go to my work. I do day in and day out. You have great value in Christ. He wants to use you for his glory. And so these aren't things that I want. I do want them because God wants them. But he desires that of you. He wants to use you for his glory. Would you consider submitting that to that today if you haven't yet? If you haven't truly given and completed to him to say, you know what, Lord, I have been resisting. I haven't been given to you, but I want to do that today. I pray that you will. If you'd like to talk about that, I'll be up here to pray with anyone that wants to. And let me close in prayer. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word today, and I, I just thank you that you are a God who desires to save all men. We're so unworthy of saving, yet that didn't matter. You still sent your son to die for unworthy people like me, and I'm grateful today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would, you would use me, that you would use your people, Lord, in a mighty way, and that maybe even in this new new year. This, this is a new season for people to truly and fully commit to you, Lord, as servants of Christ, willing to be used by you. Maybe it's areas of discipline in their own lives. Maybe a book like uh, I presented today would be a helpful thing. I don't know, Lord. Or maybe it's in different areas of, of laboring for, uh, for, for you. Maybe they're succumbing to, to um, too much of the error teaching out there. Whatever it might be, Lord, I just pray your people would be students of your word. They dig into the truth of of your word and just allow you to speak to their hearts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.